Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. So welcome back to another episode of the Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Nick Carman, and this evening I'm joined by Charlie Baxter, Managing Director and Co-Founder of Alchemy Group, a design-led residential developer in central London. But someone who, despite building this business up over 20 years, including managing a portfolio worth over £1.4 billion, we catch him now at a precipice of starting a whole new venture. So Charlie, thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure. So let's get us started, shall we? We've got a lot to talk about. Um, How does chapter one begin? Chapter one, Nick, begins in Fulham with my mum in the 1970s when the terraced houses in Fulham were all in disrepair, or many of them were. It's before the gentrification. But mum, being a single mum, bringing up two kids, turned her hand very adaptly to being able to refurbish the houses, many of which still had outdoor loos, you know, from the war, things like that. They were, they were badly damaged. Um, and so I learned from my mum what it was to be able to create something truly special, you know, a property that had been completely unmodernised, and she would actually look to be able to do them up so that they were gleaming. I learned from her how to be able to actually work with teams. In those days, most of the uh, builders in London seemed to come from Ireland in the 70s. And mum had an amazing ability to be able to team build and to be able to actually motivate people. And um, as a little chat by her side, I kind of learned from that as well. No mean feat for, uh, for a woman leading a business like that in the 70s, is it? inspirational you know she was you know she is still she's still in property even now all of these years later we've worked um on various things together and she still inspires me to this day well good on mrs b um, <laughs> given that starter then it's no wonder you sort of go on to big things charlie but let's let's go sort of step by step but what happens after this so after watching Mum in the 1970s, obviously then, I, of course, I had my schooling. Um, I didn't do brilliantly in the schooling, and I certainly d- wasn't um, academically qualified enough to be able to go to university in those days. In those days, you had universities and polytechnics. I probably could have got into a polytechnic, but my father was pretty against them. Um, much to my disappointment, I would have liked to have gone, but he thought that it would be better that I went straight into a mainstream career. So I went into the stock market, and I joined as a blue button, a lowly blue button on the stock exchange floor in the late 1980s. Uh, very exciting, very high adrenaline. And again, had to learn to think on my feet very quickly. I kind of made a success of it. And it was an amazing time. And the money was great. But I didn't really enjoy it. I didn't enjoy being inside. It was dark when I went in in the morning, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, and dark when I came out again. If I was able to get out by five thirty, six o'clock, then I would be lucky because normally I'd be dragged upstairs to um, a bar called Jonathan's. And we just, you know, it was just every evening and drinking copious amounts. Fine because I was young, uh, 19, 20 years old, but um, I, I wasn't really fulfilled in that at all. So I left that. Um, everybody was amazed that I left it because I just passed my stock exchange exams as well. And I went and joined a small estate agency in Battersea. And I loved that because I loved actually 
being out in the open air, meeting lots of people, seeing properties. Um, I loved the fact that I was now in a small company because the stock market was very overwhelming. Despite the fact in the stock market, I did make a lot of friends and it, you know, it was good for team building. It was just on a huge, epic scale. So going back again to this small company in Battersea just seemed like a night and day difference. And it did my mental health an enormous amount of good. I learned how to be able to negotiate. I learned you know, quite a lot about um, residential properties and leaseholds, etc. And I, I loved it. The reason I left was because... I felt after a few years there that ultimately I was just the agent and I really had always wanted to be a developer. So I didn't feel very fulfilled on that front. And also one of the things I learned at that stage, which was a, uh, an eye-opening experience, was that there were deals being done in this small estate agency that were not above board. And I was not okay with that, even though seemingly everybody in the agency seemed okay with it um, and it was a way to be able to make quick you know and good money I learned that there were things that are more important than money and my values uh, were, were that and so I stepped away from that and in 1991 I joined Barrett Holmes who were at that stage recruiting for part exchange dealers if you like and I fit the bill I loved it. Now Lots and lots of our early careers are often shaped by our parents, and you sort of you, you very kind of, um, shared a bit of information about sort of um, about your mum. What did they make about uh, about this young Charlie Baxter sort of uh, bouncing around trying these new things out? My mum is always very supportive. She has been an entrepreneur her whole life, and she supported me um, in everything that I did, which was which was wonderful. A lot of the time, though, I mean, her own career has been sort of like flying by the seat of her pants as well, slightly. So a lot of the time, mum was trying many, many new ventures without really getting very knowledgeable about them and then moving on to new things. So her support was great, but also it wasn't, if you like, as a mentor. It was as a very supportive mum, which was great. I like that. My dad was far more cautious he was not really a businessman um, at all. He had great creative flair, but he didn't really apply himself to that and saw himself as more of a intellectual. And I didn't really relate to him in the same way. So in many ways, a lot of the career decisions I took were in spite of my dad and also to be able to somewhat prove myself to my dad that I could do it when he was always more cautious and saying, no, you can't do it. So... One of the key moments, I think, throughout all our podcasts are just sort of just having a quick moment just to check in and see, you know, what have you learned up, and, up until this point? So obviously trying out these different things, you, you've, you've shared with me sort of you know, what, what wasn't working or what you didn't like about these. But what do you, what do you think you've learned most about these two, those chapters? Well, with, with following mum round in the 1970s, the sheer ability to be able to refurbish homes on a shoestring, Nick, it was quite incredible how she achieved it, where she was able to be able to fit bathrooms under stairs, etc., how she was able to be able to um, subdivide these homes. And the ability to be able to work with teams who were sometimes very reluctant to be able to do some of these projects, which, you know, they were unsafe sites, 
but mum was always prepared to be able to roll up her sleeves and get her hands dirty. So I realised that it, that is how you need to be able to lead. You get straight in there and you look to be able to um, roll up your sleeves and lead from the front. So I learned from that, which was great. In the stock market, I was amazed by the sort of level of wealth um, and the transactions and the amount that they actually gave me in terms of responsibility. I was walking around with tickets worth, even in those days, billions of uh, pounds, asked to be able to transact, buy and sell. So the responsibility that I knew I could take on my shoulders and rise to the challenge for that. And I was never good at maths either. So uh, it surprised, I think with my own skills, was my own ability to be able to achieve something. I'd failed maths O-level. In fact, I was taking maths O-level while I was actually taking my stock exchange <laughs> exams. And, um, and, 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 they, and they seemed quite okay with that because I think that they saw in me the ability to be able to deal and that was the most important thing. So, you know, learning how to be able to overcome obstacles. Um, and I learned, obviously, an appreciation, which has stayed with me all of my life, for uh, creativity, creating beautiful, sustainable homes. And just, you know, the whole before and after, which is always and continues to inspire me now. So that was that up till then. And then when I got to um, Barrett, I mean, it completely changed because obviously I was in Barrett at a very, very challenging time in the market. In 1991, there was a massive recession. Interest rates were super high. Barrett got stuck with hundreds of millions worth of unsold stock. And they were trying something for the first time in part exchange that they hadn't tried before. They were taking on different kinds of um, characters to be able to help them trade out of that position. So I wasn't a typical Barrett type, um, but they took me on because they knew and they saw in me, my, in me my ability to be able to think fast, trade these properties out. And the thing that I loved most of all about those early years at Barrett is we bought in hundreds of properties, often so much that I didn't even know what I, we were buying them so fast. We I didn't even know what we were buying until after we'd bought them. And then, of course, many of them had difficulties, which is why people couldn't sell them, which is why they sold them to Barrett. So very often these issues were about neighborly disputes or um, they were in a very rough area. And my boss in Barrett just simply said to us, get out sort out the problem and don't come back until it's sorted. So that meant actually, <laughs> and he meant it, so that meant actually often going into these rough areas. You know, I remember one property was next door to um, a building which had been occupied by uh, a bike gang, kind of like Hells Angels, I guess, uh, who were parking their bikes in the front yard um, and actually, as a result, causing a lot of anxiety for people who were viewing the property next door, which we'd bought in part exchange but hadn't seen. So you had to knock on the door and sit down with them and actually say, look, what, what is it that you guys are actually looking for? Because what we're looking for is to be able to sell the property next door. And while you're actually behaving like this, we can't do that. So that's an extreme example. But I, I, I had to sort numerous issues like that. And I think that was great. It, it taught me to cut my teeth and learn how to be able to negotiate with people, how to talk to people. You know, it was in a world, Nick, whereby you literally did sit down with a cup of tea with people at face-to-face and talk through your differences and look to be able to resolve them and not actually 
come back up for air until you have actually resolved them. Now, that's that's quite a complex skill, isn't it? That problem solving. And try, mm-hmm. you know, sort of coming, you know, we'll, we'll make time for this later as well. But this, from my research, this is, this is obviously one of your superpowers, I'm told, your, your problem solving skills. Is that innate? Is that something you, you know, sort of you've, you've always had in terms of managing that sort of conflict? Or is that something that you've, that's, you've picked up along the way? And, you know, what's, or, you know, it's been relati- you know, a relatively sort of short career so far. In those days, I suppose education or further education wasn't as significant or as mainstream as uh, now. But even then, I realised that um, without having a university degree and going through the university of life, uh, my back was going to be more against the wall. And so I had to be able to actually apply myself and learn more about what that actually entailed. So what skills could I actually compensate for the lack of degree that would actually get me into a, a managerial or even a business ownership uh, position. So I don't know that it was innate. Um, I think my mum helped a lot because she showed me what was possible with regard to refurbishment and motivating teams. I mean, some very funny stories from, you know, of her leading from the front, quite literally, you know, most of which involving actually regular trips down to McDonald's for huge sort of uh, uh, orders of... um, Big Macs and fries for the whole team, and which we all got stuck into in our lunch breaks outside in these rickety old houses. So, you know, working with people right up front and actually making everybody feel that they're part of the team and equal in it, which has, has lived, you know, I've, that, that has been in, has endured, you know, um, throughout my life. Okay, then. So, how long were you at Barrett? So I was at Barrett for nine years. Um, I left in 1999 to set up Alchemy Group. And the last four years, I was setting up Barrett West London's division, you know, the division called Barrett West London. So the early 1990s, Barrett were attracted hugely. It was a shell of a company it had been in the late 80s. You know, it got really hammered hard. But by mid-90s, it was rewarding those people who had actually helped it to be able to survive with positions. And so um, I was actually commuting in those days from the overall head office in the Southern Division, in the Southern UK, which was in Guildford, I think it still is. Um, And um, I was called in and I was asked to be able to set up Barrett West London. So um, I was thrilled about that. I was going to be the head of sales there, so the uh, sales director designate. And I went to the new office and there simply wasn't anything there. I thought I'd got the wrong address. I thought it was a mistake. So I, I rang up Guildford and I said, I, I've arrived here in Hounslow and I think I'm at the right building, but there isn't anything there. And they said, yeah, that's right. You've got to buy it all. I said, I didn't realise it. You, you mean I've actually got to buy the desks and the, and, and the phones? <laughs> they said, yeah, you're setting it up. I was like, I thought I was just setting up the sales department. They said, well, you've got three colleagues. And it was there that I met my three colleagues and the managing director, Clive Fenton, who went on to be the chairman of Barrett and who I I had an enormous amount of respect for and I still see. And he, you know, has become like a mentor for me. Not one of my closest mentors, but nevertheless, somebody who I respected a lot and while I've been at Alchemy has actually also helped me as well. So very grateful for that. So I learned there how to be able to set up a company, not fully on my own at that stage. 
And the other thing that Barrett taught me, Nick, which was incredible, I remember we bought this huge derelict mental institution, a hospital, a vast Victorian hospital, and it caught fire. And one morning I came in and everybody was running around the office and, you know, they were, they, you know, because obviously this was in the papers, it was a sensation. And so I said to my boss, I said, so I assume we're actually stopping our regular morning meeting while we deal with this. And he said, absolutely not. We would never do that. And so he would go through everything systematically. It didn't matter how big the issue was. Uh, Barrett, there was a sequential way for being able to actually tackle every issue. Even if it was a building on fire, there was, there was a discipline I learned on how to be able to deal with, with problems that I took into also running my own business. And I think it taught me, I think, I think that that taught me as well, um, not just quite literally the firefighting, but how everything in development in particular can be overcome of any size and magnitude. I'd walk some of these sites and I would think, good, I mean, how are we going to do that? We, how are we going to do that? I was on the sales side, so I wasn't on the technical side. But in those days, of course, especially when you were running a new division, you know, you were still walking the site with your three colleagues, technical, construction and the MD. And, you know, you, you each of us had a, a, a part to play in the setting up of the new site. So I think this brings on really nicely now, uh, Charlie, and to, to this, the start of, you know, what turns out to be a 20-year-long business in Alchemy Group. Yes. Tell yeah, us how absolutely. that first seed is sown. It was interesting. By the end of night, by the time I left Barrett, and again, it was one of those decisions, leaving that corporate life nine years, and they tried to persuade me several times not to go. And um, I was very nervous about going. I mean, what was I going to? I was going to be setting up Baxter Developments, but Baxter Developments was effectively myself in my flat in Pimlico. Um, I had, didn't know Laura at that stage. I hadn't met her. It was a big decision for me to go, but even in the last couple of years at Barrett, I was actually already flipping, as it's called, you know, when you're refurbishing, as mum did in the 70s, you know, flipping flats in my own right, really to be able to get comfortable with the fact that I had the ability to make sufficient money to be able to keep my you know, body and soul together when I, when I left the company. So I proved that to myself already. And my development as I left there was very formulaic. I was using a lot of the Barrett suppliers and contacts and they, they just joked. I said, you know, it, you know I, I knew I'd learned at Barrett how to be able to buy sites well. So the fundamentals were true, whether you're buying a very large site or whether it's just a single apartment that you're renovating. So I, I knew how to be able to buy sites well. And so I was buying these flats. I was refurbishing them but only to a very basic specification using the same suppliers that I had contacts with at Barrett, tiles and bathrooms and things. And as a result, I actually didn't really feel very fulfilled creatively. So when I left Barrett and set up Baxter Developments, I was doing okay and I was doing one or two um, flats and, was, and, and, and they were, because I think I was buying them well, they were actually selling well and I was making money, but I wasn't, there was no fulfillment. There was no creative fulfillment. So I toyed with the idea of moving to the States because a good friend of mine was living out there. And while I was out there, I met Laura 
and everything changed. You know, meeting Laura, she's my wife. I, we, we met in 2000, we got married in 2021. And um, at that stage, she was working for a advertising company in their um, creative department. Um, and she joined me shortly after 2002, 2003, which is when we formed and founded Alchemy Group. And everything changed. I, I went back to the same suppliers. We, 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 we did the refurb still in London, but we were actually also doing it in the States as well. So we were actually had one foot in each camp. And by that stage, one of my colleagues at Barrett had left Barrett to come and join me. So he was effectively running London. And I was actually running the States uh, part of it with Laura. And we would come back every six weeks or so because my family is out here and see the family and give the business out here a push. But it was Laura's creative direction and her decisions to be able to change up everything that completely changed and transformed the company. And what I mean by that is, is that we, we, we ended up getting spotted by investors who had actually attended a launch of one of our flats in... Um, uh, I think it was in Bayswater, opposite Whiteleys, which we launched, you know, at a time of great economic uncertainty. So the launch itself was 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 unbelievably badly timed, but the flat did very well and outperformed anything else that was selling there, simply because Laura's design was very very different and uh, very unusual and. I like to think that her design, especially the way that she actually ends up using colours and ironmongery and even the staging, has been emulated by other people. And she says, oh, you know, they plagiarise it, they've taken my ideas. But for me, emulation is the greatest form of flattery. And I do think that's happened. And I think that that's a wonderful thing that it has actually happened. But anyway, cut a long story short. We started off by doing single apartments. Uh, we got spotted by investors who said, well, we would like to be able to back you doing apartments. And could you, do you think you could scale this <laughs> in those days? What we scale were, like, were you at at this time? Yeah, I should, I should interrupt as well at this stage and say the first investor I met has, has been a mentor. Of, this was back in 2005, six. Has been you know is, is is Graham who you who who you, you I think spoke with and and he's actually been an investor and mentor for me ever since. He's an amazing man, very very careful real estate career, and he backed our first couple of projects himself just by himself actually. And these were just flats, two or three flats together, Bayswater, the whole Westminster area, but mainly then in Pimlico as well. And even though we didn't do brilliantly well financially because of the time of year, I learned so much from Graham. I learned to be able to hold my nerve. I mean, a man who um, has uh, nerves of uh, steel, and I learned that, um, to be cool under pressure. And, and from that, actually, we got spotted by other investors. And those other investors then backed us to do even larger projects, you know, buying, for example, say, two buildings in St. George's Square in Pimlico, which we got planning for, a brilliant planning consent, I have to say, and we struck the deal very well. And unfortunately, we didn't end up actually building it out because we did so well, actually through flipping it with the planning consent, that the investor wanted out. He wanted to be able to cash in his profit. But he did actually then back us on a couple of other projects and found other investors for even more projects after that. 
So we, um, uh, although we, we we regrettably didn't build it out, we did actually build up our credibility on how to be able to actually develop well. So we um, we started doing larger and larger schemes that involved more and more planning skills. You know, first of all, they were planning skills just to be able to add mansard additions, and that involved me looking to be able to liaise with the neighbours, something I've always done because, again, I've always actually looked to be able to build good relationships with every stakeholder that I could possibly find, neighbours, local associations, residents' associations. I've always liked to be able to get stuck in so we built up these the, these uh, these good relationships. We built up these investor contacts, and then Nick, we the company started growing in a way that actually, if I'm being honest, um, I lost control of. I I said and thought that I could actually deliver quality and sustainability at a large scale. But when we actually were uh, when we bought a um, site. With the in the in the in the Vauxhall and Nine Elms tall buildings area, which we got consent to be able to build a 32-story tower of 278 apartments, I realised that I had bitten off more than I could chew because although we'd created how big a leap was that? How, what was the what was the biggest development you'd done before? So the biggest development that we actually completed is 55 Victoria Street, a, a, a development of about 130,000 square foot, uh, 57 uh, large loft-type apartments. Even the small one-bedroom ones were, or even the one-bedroom flats and studios were about six to 800 square foot because of the way that the building was configured as a 1980s office block. We had the opportunity to, and with high ceilings, 1980s buildings have high ceilings, we had the opportunity to be able to convert it. And as we, Laura and I stood on the roof of 55 Victoria Street, looked down Victoria Street, and we saw that it was the closest that we'd seen in London to actually New York, where we'd lived for a few years when we, when we first got married. So we were like, wow, we can really create genuine loft-type apartments here. So we bought the building. Do you remember how much you paid for it? We paid 33 million for it. And when we got the consent, the investor wanted to be able to sell it. The consent was so good and it was such a high quality building. And it took us, again, I've got very strong relationships, especially in those days with Westminster City Council, you know, who in those days, you know, the um, councillors really cared enormously. I'm not saying they don't now, um, but in those days, they really cared enormously about the design and the sustainability. And that is inherent to Laura and myself in whatever we do. So we got over issues to do with height amassing that other developers who were looking to buy the site simply didn't believe for a moment that we would be able to get through because we knew that ultimately we would be able to create a building that actually was an award-winning top-class building. And in fact, that building then went on to win the RIBA Regional Award 2017, which is a very high accolade, the REBA Awards, a very high accolade for a building. And it went on to be able to achieve a BRIAM excellent status, which back then in 2015, 16, when, uh, when we were completing the project, was a very good achievement mm-hmm. for a conversion of a 1980s building. So we were immensely proud of that. And that was the one that we'd actually, the biggest one we'd actually uh, completed. 
Uh, not the most profitable one that we completed, but the biggest project that we'd actually completed. And that gave it opened the door then for us to be able to... The, the company, the vendor of that building, BlackRock, actually then called us a few years later and said, you know what, um, we see that we actually missed out so much value-add potential with regard to how you transform 55 Victoria Street. We've got another building coming up in the Strand, and we would love for you guys to be the development managers for that for us to be able to value-add for it. So we built up a really good reputation of being able to value-add because we used outstanding architects picked by Laura. We came up with outstanding uh, concepts and the council, as a result, rewarded us for that because they could see a company who genuinely was looking to be able to improve the built environment, which is what, we, you know, has to come from a genuine intent. You know, I think that if I was just some sort of um, private equity company or perhaps a, a large-scale developer, I don't think I would have got the consent. But because they knew that, I mean, I'd been resident in Westminster most of my life. You know, my dad was living there until the day he died. My mum still lives in Westminster. So I was a, a local lad. I knew all the people, or many of the people actually there, and cared about it. I was involved in the community. I still am. I'm actually on the Victoria Neighbourhood Forum, looking to be able to come up with a plan for the next 10 years for Westminster you know, a, a plan that factors in the climate crisis, which is something I'm now far more involved in. So anyway, so 55 Victoria Street was the biggest project we completed. And, you know, we learned so many lessons from that. And we loved doing it because we were working with very, very high quality architects, Stephen Trevelyan, who are still very, we're still very good friends with. And, you know, a really good team of people who we built personally through our relationships to be able to deliver that. Even the contractor who was a tier one contractor was a family firm. And, you know, and I knew the two sons of the family firm because I made a point of meeting and, and knowing the sons of the family firm. So that actually we forged a good relationship. And even when the negotiations became challenging at 55 Victoria Street through the construction, it was a um, 40 million construction project. I was able to be able to sort that out by picking up the phone to Owen and saying, you know what, we're, we're hitting some, you know, some choppy waters on the negotiations Let's meet up and have a coffee and just thrash it out. Back to the Barrett, yeah? Sorting yep. out basically everything over a cup of tea in your front room and not leaving until it's actually sorted out. And I think that people, you know, people pick up on that. And I think now, funnily enough, Nick, in today's world whereby people are so loath, you know, to be able to pick up the phone, I think those skills are more valued than ever to be able to actually have people who are prepared to, and know how to be able to break through. And it's not easy. Even for me, it's not easy right now in this world. You know, you're treading on eggshells in so many areas, in so many ways. So, Charlie, I just wanted to bring in a little bit of our research at this point. Now, I asked several people, you know, what they thought you do really, really well. And, and interestingly, I got sort of different voices, but, but all singing the same tune. And this is, I thought, was sort of the, most, the most eloquent way they put it. Charlie interrogates things. He doesn't take <laughs> things at face value, ever. And he always probes and asks questions. 
He won't be lazy in doing so and he keeps asking until he is really certain of the answer. Yeah. So this harks back to this problem solver, conflict manager in his, in his early days. But yeah. let's put this into sort of the cold light of day, Charlie. Given sort of the alchemy sort of um, track record of sort of 20 years, what was the greatest hurdle or challenge it faced? Well, undoubtedly, as well, I grew the business very, very quickly, probably too quickly. 2014-15 was the peak of that. And then the hikes in the interest rates, the interest rates had been about 3% since the year dot. Then they hiked them up, especially for foreign ownership, to 15%, almost overnight. I mean, we're talking about in a year or so, in the period of a year. And then we followed by the European referendum, the Brexit vote in 2016. I realised that that was it. It was over. We had to be able to move very quickly to downsize the business. We had to let go some very good, loyal, key team members. And we also had to be able to mitigate where we were in the remaining projects that we actually had, which were all being impacted by these economic decisions. And I cannot over state how painful that was. And when we bought, for example, say, 7 to 12 Leinster Square, um, we were also, we were developing it into six listed houses, painstakingly developed into 11 apartments, beautiful high-end apartments. And we had to navigate the downsizing of the company and the stamp duty hikes throughout that, as well as a challenging contractor on site who was not finishing the project to the requisite standard. And it became very, very challenging. So the client ultimately, though, after we finished it all and purchasers moved in and there had been angry words and gnashing of teeth, the client took us to lunch and there was no profit made at all on it. Uh, the client took us to lunch and said, you know what, you stuck with that. You know, uh, the dog with a bone thing rings true. You stuck with that, Charlie. And we really, really appreciate you sticking with that. We took ownership of all of the issues that those homeowners, new homeowners had, because we knew it was the right thing to do. And we stuck with it. The second phase became even more challenging for us because we bought the building before Brexit it was uh, and the stamp duty hikes. We got the planning consent for these large apartments and the client, who was this American uh, uh, private equity company, just thought, wow, things are not going well at 7 to 12 Leinster Square. We can see that. Um, things are not looking good from the point of view of actually uh, associated branding with Alchemy Group and so because of 7 to 12 Leinster Square. And so we ended up getting fired on that, which was really painful for me and Laura. We, we couldn't even complete that project. So that was also a, um, a tough decision. And then finally, on Westminster Fire Station, we started that project. Again, we had a challenging situation with the contractor. He went into administration and we had five changes of contractor management to deal with. We had the pandemic to deal with as well, which delayed the project by three years. The client, who was an overseas investor, lost faith and lost patience in the process, looked to be able to change tack instead of selling, to be able to rent. Things became challenging commercially. No money made at all on that project either. But we saw that project all the way through. That The, the two-year 
defect management period ended in September of this year, and we saw the whole project through from 2016 right to the end. There were 28 of us to start with in the company in 2016, two of us, Laura and myself, at the end. The two people who were mentioned in the development management agreement as the key people were the two people who ended that project, and that's something that I'm very proud of. Now, I'm always quick to sort of to raise the newest business, the newest founder in real estate. You know, our audience find it incredibly exciting to listen listen to these success stories. But you've just sort of given us then, you know, sort of when times don't go smoothly. How does that feel then as as the founder? Well, we, we, we've just finished. It, it's, it's, felt, it's not felt good, I have to say. It's not felt good to be able to go through. It's never good to let people go. It's never good to be able to disappoint clients and investors. But I feel very proud about the fact that we have come through this and we've come through this wiser. And whoever that was you spoke with who said about the contracts, I mean, it was Graham who taught me to be able to actually pay as much attention to the end of the contract as to the beginning. So the lessons learned through those projects are to be really diligent, to carefully put together a team and to be able to ensure that if you want a smooth running project, that you are diligent and that you, you, you leave no stone unturned. And that is a skill that I have honed, but also in particular over the last five years through these challenging projects, through the challenging projects, where I've actually ended up having to manage it myself, because as I said, we were 28 of us at the beginning, two at the end. So I, I took over the management of it. And getting through that was a great personal satisfaction, probably the most satisfying, even more satisfying than winning the Reba Award for Victoria Street, which was a team effort, but I was not directly involved in that team. I was more of an overview position in those days. Those projects that we actually didn't do well, I steered actually to the end by myself and with Laura, and I'm really proud of that. Now, tell us now, we're, we're, we're pretty much sort of bang up to date now, Charlie. Tell us what's, what's the status quo at the moment. Yes, yeah, so over the last few years, as we've been winding the company down, I've becoming more and more interested in the environmental movement and sustainability. It's always been important to us. I mean, Westminster Fire Station was obviously the conversion of an existing fire station. We reduced carbon emissions by 60%, but the build regs actually require a carbon emission reduction of 35% over and above build regulations, we reduced by 60%. So a phenomenal effort for any development in London, which is averaging about 40%. So we always actually have been very sustainable developers. We care very much about the environment. But now with the crisis, the climate crisis spiraling, we're turning our attention there to being able to use those effective project management skills and all of our contacts in the sustainability and the real estate and the development market, uh, construction market, I mean, to be able to actually go to homeowners in London. It's a myriad of issues when you're looking to be able to improve your home, uh, to improve energy efficiency and reduce carbon. We're just getting to, to, to grips with that now, understanding all of the contracts and the quotes that are coming in. And we look to be able to distill that information 
and to be able to ensure that we treat clients in the same way that we were treating our clients, homeowners being our clients now, in the same way that we were actually looking to treat our clients when we were developing. And that is always looking to be able to actually protect the bottom line for them, make sure that they achieve their ends, which is in this case being presumably as eco-friendly as they can make their homes for the least possible amount of money, and look to be able to run the project in the smooth way as we possibly can. And that requires, I mean, there, I mean, Nick, I mean, in London alone, there are about 400,000 homes over a million pounds in value, which is where our target market is, over a million pound properties. And if we actually retro, with an average EPC rating of D, we have to get everything up to A in this country by 2050. So if we were to be looking to retrofit 15,500 homes a year for the next 26 years, we would actually achieve that target. I'm not sure at our new business at Moffitt-Baxter we can scale to that level, but what I'm hoping to be able to do is to build a movement, if you like, an army of retrofit assessors, people who are keen to be able to learn about retrofit assessment and then to be able to do so within the framework of our business ethics and our way of being able to run projects diligently and effectively through setting up effective project execution plans. So we all of us have got some way to go to be able to obviously decarbonize our city and to be able to decarbonize the country. But I would like to be able to devote the rest of my career to being able to use my skills to make that as easy as possible for as many people as we can, which means actually setting up retrofit hotlines, having us retrofit assessors out there. Uh, we're even looking at actually setting up our own retrofit academy so that we can actually look to be able to teach retrofitters, not just government compliance, to be able to, do, to, to be qualified to trust mark standard and achieve government compliance, but Moffat Baxter compliance as well, which is the name of the new business we're launching in the new year, which is a level above that as well. Right, Charlotte. We need to wrap, wrap this up now, uh, now, but I've got time for one last question. And so what I wanted to ask you about is if you look back over this career now, over all the lessons you've, you've learned and thinking about the challenges that got, you've got sort of coming forward next, what do you think has been your greatest natural ability that's meant you've been able to have that success over these, over these years? Listening to my intuition, most definitely. That's what led me to meet Laura. And there's been that voice in my head that actually has always guided me in the right direction. I've often been in meetings where I felt out of my depth. But when I've actually been out of my depth, I've always known that the universe will actually provide an answer and bring that to me. It is quite incredible how I have always relied on the universe to be able to provide the answer to me. And even when the chips look down, the universe has always come up. And I think obviously, therefore, then gratitude for that. I've always, not always, more, more recently, I've realized how grateful I am in particular for that natural uh, intuition and listening to that. I think everybody has it. I just think that we don't, we don't always listen to it and we let things actually get in the way of that. In particular, things like um, 
making decisions regarding value judgments around uh, money, mistakes I've made myself looking to be able to jump on things because they're actually big and shiny rather than actually looking to be able to step back and ask yourself, does this actually match up with my values? And I think that that is the thing that I am um, most proud of, to be able to be true to my values throughout. Well, Charlie, thank you very much for this. You know, you've st- told this story really, really well, and we haven't shied away then from, uh, from some of the harder moments and the lessons you've learned as that. So thank you very much for that candour. I appreciate it. It's a great opportunity to share. Thank you for that, Nick.